You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Heads up, really a, a, a ministry that reaches around the world on adoption. And I have asked Chris in the light of uh, the ruling on Roe v. Wade if he would help us, help me as we begin. I talked briefly to the elders about it the other night, uh, of putting together a program where we could help young girls uh, who find themselves expecting a child. Somebody has an, an unplanned pregnancy and... Um, uh, we should step forward and take care of these people, help do all that we can do. I thank the Lord for the ruling, the saving of life, but it also brings with it a responsibility of caring. So be in prayer for us as we do that. And uh, Jeremy's a big man, and I got soaked. So <laughs> if y'all don't mind, I'm just not going to put my coat on this morning. It's holiday weekend anyway. Thank you for being here. We had a great crowd in the early service. Baptizer is a great crowd here, far more than I anticipated on, on the third. Today's historic day. Uh, in 1755, Washington became uh, the military commander of the Continental Forces. And um, in that, uh, I think that was right. I think it was in 1755. Anyway, I could be off on that. But now listen, one day you're going to be old too. So uh, the other thing is, of course, tomorrow is the birthday of this country, 1776. is what, 246 years ago, 246 years. Hey, today is the, third, the history of the third day's battle, 159 years ago, uh, of Gettysburg. Had Lee had another division uh, to back up Pickett's charge, we would live in a very different country, a very different nation. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is uh, nations, nations. What, what do you see in the Word of God about nations? Because the word, the noun, nation, or plural, nations, is used over 600 times in the Word of God. Now, we normally think of God as, well, he's, you know, he's Lord of my life, okay, and he's Lord of the church, and, you know, he's Lord of this situation, that situation. We rarely think of God being God of the nations, and yet the Word of God is continuously telling us that God is the God of the nations. Now, let me give you an illustration. June the 28th, 1787, it was hot. It was, um, it was not only hot, but um, the men in this room were even hotter. Uh, they were angry. They were debating. They were, some were beginning to raise their voices uh, and they were trying to determine how representation uh, of these 13 colonies could take place. It was the Constitutional Convention, and in the midst of all of this rising anger and upset, a 72-year-old man uh, stood up to address uh, that body of men. When they finally calmed down long enough to hear him, Benjamin Franklin, the deist, called and said, we need to pray. Now, this is a deist asking to pray. 
Now, a deist believes essentially, to give it to you briefly, that God created all of this and then he just walked away. He went on vacation for the rest of eternity and he just left it all here for us to figure out. Now, that's the basic belief of a deist. Well, here is Franklin who stands up and says, I don't, I don't think we can solve this without prayer. Alexander Hamilton uh, stood and he said, no, he said, let's, let's not do that because we'll send out the wrong signal. Uh, he didn't mean let's keep a separation of government and state. Uh, that's not in the Constitution, as I know that you know. Uh, it was in a personal lab, uh, letter to um, Baddus in Danbury, Connecticut, uh, from Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so it was not an issue of separation of church and state. It was an issue, Alexander Hamilton felt, uh, as if people would read into it that we could not solve this issue. So Franklin stood back up and he addressed the body as only Franklin could do. He could motivate this entire group of people. And he said this, he said, sirs, I have lived a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing truths I see that God governs in the affairs of men. You must ask the question, was he beginning to moderate in his deist beliefs the older he got? By the way, he loved to hear the preaching of George Whitfield. In fact, he financially gave. He would tithe, believe it or not, a deist to George Whitfield for his preaching crusades. Somebody asked Franklin one time, said, listen, do you believe what this guy is saying? And Franklin said, I don't know, but I can tell you what, he sure believes it. Let's wake up now. Come on. The holiday is not until tomorrow. So Franklin goes on and he says this, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire could rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. I firmly believe this and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly, not just today, but every morning before we proceed to the business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Now that's a deist who says we can't do what we've been sent here to do by the people unless somebody comes and takes us before the throne of Almighty God. Now, let me tell you something. David would have agreed exactly with the words of Benjamin Franklin. Because David in Psalm 33, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to look with me. I'll leave the uh, fruit of the, uh, of the Spirit, the fruit of revival for a Sunday, especially since we're just on the threshold of uh, the birthday of this country. And I want you to look at how God reigns sovereign over nations. You see, God stands supreme over human history, and he stands sovereignly over nations. Now, let me give you that again, because that is exactly what he's saying in the three verses that Riley read in Psalm 33, verse 10, 11, and 12, God stands supreme over human history, and he stands sovereignly over the nations. 
That is, over every decision that nations make, God is aware of it long before it ever enters into the mind of a president or a prime minister or a potentate or a ruler or anyone who leads a nation. Now, let me just tell you, first of all, before I get into the text, I want you to understand God reigns supreme. And that means over the nations of the world. Isaiah talks about this. I don't want you to go there, but you can note that in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17, uh, the prophet says this, all the nations are as nothing before him. Now, you think of all the deliberative bodies around the world. You think of that deliberative body there, the Politburo or whatever they call it now in Moscow, uh, that uh, group that gathers there in Beijing. You think of the parliament in England. You think of that uh, gathering there in Paris. You think of the gathering in Washington, D.C. And the word of God says all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless that all the deliberations of all the governments of the world don't mean anything to God. He is sovereign. They are not. You come to Jeremiah. The nation is about to go into captivity. We know this from history. They're about to go into Babylonian captivity. You think of all of these empires of the Old Testament Egypt, the empire there in Egypt, you think of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, all these empires uh, that you read about in Scripture, Judah, it's as a nation, is about to be swallowed up and taken over and invaded by the Babylonian Empire. God sends Jeremiah down to a maker of pottery. And he watches this guy make a clay pot. You are very familiar with the passage, great visual. And God says this, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, pull it down, destroy it. Then in verse 9 he says, or at another time I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. Listen, God reigns over human history and stands sovereignly over nations. He says, I can pull them down or I can build them up. And he goes on to say, if it does evil, if I pull a nation up, I cause a nation to rise and it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. He says, then I will cut off its blessings if it's not obedient to me. That's what he said over and over. That's why Judah is about to go into captivity. They've turned their back on God in God's word. And God says, I'm not going to bless you anymore. Well, David is talking about that back in Psalm 33. Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 are interesting in that most Old Testament scholars think they are one long psalm. Now, Psalm 32 is a psalm of repentance. It's the second penitentiary psalm of David. He comes in repentance of his sin. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's how he begins this psalm, and he ends it with these words in verse 11 of chapter 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And look at how he begins Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord. He ends one with praise. He begins the other with praise. 
And so what David is going to do in this psalm is he's going to show you at the very heart. Now, let me show you something. If you got your copy of God's Word, the first three verses, David emphasizes the lordship of Almighty God. He is Lord of all. Sing for joy in the Lord. Then he comes down now, and he begins in verse 6, and he comes and he sees him as creator. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And he starts talking about God as creator. He comes in verse 10 through verse 12, and he speaks of him being sovereign God. That is the very center of this song. You have two pericopes before, you have two pericopes after, and in the middle you've got these three verses where he speaks of the sovereignty of God over the nations. The Lord nullifies the counsels of nations. That is, a nation can decide to do something like take over Kiev, and God will just say, Nit, you're not going to do it. And they were not able to do it, which is fascinating to me. Far more fascinating to me than you, evidently. Verse 13, listen to what he does. He speaks of God as judge. The Lord looks from heaven, and he sees all the sons of men. He is the judge who watches us, who sees our heart. Verse 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, he is now the Savior. So now I want you to watch as I take this and I'm going to walk through it and I'm driving to these last verses beginning in verse 20, but I want you to see this in the life of our nation. Number one, America was founded by those hungry for worship. It's exactly what David is talking about in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. In fact, he uses seven verbs here. Look at this, sing for joy. Praise, verse 2, give thanks, sing praises, verse 3, sing to him, play skillfully, shout. He's speaking of worship and he says this is what should be taking place in our worship of God. We should be singing and not just singing the old songs. He talks here about singing the new songs. We should be playing instruments, all kinds of instruments, and we should be playing skillfully while we shout to the Lord. He's speaking of the of the worship of God's people. Do you understand that that is the way this country was founded? The French and the Spanish sent armies to America before the English got here. Why did they send armies? Because they were looking for two things. Now, they brought priests with them. By the way, I've just gotten back from St. Augustine, Florida, and was preaching down that way the other Sunday. And uh, there you pass as you drive through St. Augustine, the Castillo. Uh, that's, where, that's the first fortress that the Spanish built here in America. It's the oldest city. They came. They founded the oldest city there, and they put an army inside of that. And uh, they came here for two purposes. The French did the same thing. The French came. They brought an army. They brought priests. But they were not interested in setting up any kind of religion. Uh, they were interested in these two things. One was territory, to claim territory for Spain, to claim territory for France. The second thing was this. Um, I was going to quote you a poem. Um, Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, um, rode through sunshine and shadow. Um, he journeyed long singing a song in search of El Dorado. Not the John Wayne movie, The City of Gold. That's what they were looking for. They came for gold. They came for territory. When the English came in 1620, they came for something different. Now, I could go back to 1607 when they landed at the north end of what today is Virginia Beach and erected a cross. But let me get you to 1620. 
with those that came over on the Mayflower. They came over not with an army. They came over with preachers and a congregation. That's who was on the ship and the sailors. They came over with preachers and a congregation because they were looking for a place where they could worship God as they believed the word of God instructed them. Now, when they left England, they were Puritans because they were inside the Anglican church and inside the Anglican church, they were seeking to purify it. They were seeking to make it less Romanish and more Protestant, but the Anglican church put them out, would not let them worship, and so those Puritans became pilgrims when they got on that ship and they headed for the new world. On that Mayflower, before they disembarked at what would become Plymouth Colony, they wrote what we call the Mayflower Compact. Why did they come here? What were they seeking to do? Listen to them in their own words. In their own words, you read this compact. In the name of God, amen. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of of the Christian faith. Now, did you hear that? For the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Bless their heart, they thought they were going to Virginia and ended up in Massachusetts. Uh, northern parts of Virginia do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God in one another covenant and combine ourselves together. Why did they covenant? Why did they combine themselves together? For the advancement of the Christian faith. Ten years later in 1630, you had yet another group that came. They're going to found what is going to be called the Massachusetts Bay Colony. In that group of people came a man by the name of John Winthrop. John Winthrop was not a preacher. He was a preaching lawyer. In other words, he was a lawyer and politician who could flat more preach. And in fact, in 1630, when they landed, he preached a sermon. He reached into Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and he used a verse that would become very prominent in this country. In fact, as late as George Bush quoted this, uh, his, uh, 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 and uh, Ronald Reagan quoted this. These presidents would quote this down through our history, and what they would quote is this, is that uh, you are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Winthrop said, this is this new world. We are going to be a city on a hill. We're going to shine the light of Christ, and we will not be hidden. In 1643, more and more English were coming, and then people from all over the other part of Europe, they were coming as well. And as they gathered, they formed more and more of these New England colonies. And in 1643, the New England colonies now, this is just 23 years after Plymouth Rock. Uh, just 23 years later, they formed a confederation they came together and they entered into a constitution, the first constitution written on American soil. Believe it or not, they came together, the New England Confederation, and they signed it, and this is what they said. We, whereas we all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and in peace. You can thank those 
Pilgrim Fathers uh, for the founding of this country on one thing. Listen to what they say. The advancement of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're saying that, preacher, are you telling us that we are a Christian nation? Well, you just hang on. You'll have to decide for yourself. You'll have to make that own decision for yourself. And you'll have to find out where are we now? Where are we today? But now listen to what David writes in the heart of this psalm, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Do you understand that when they founded these colonies in in, uh, New England, that they literally were coming to found what they would call the New Jerusalem? They would call it the New Jerusalem, the New Israel. They would come and establish what they believed to be was a New Testament nation a New Testament government. Now, I'm going to stop right here, and I'm going to address two things. Christian nationalism, I'm not in favor of. Number two, I am in favor of my nation being Christian, however. The second thing is this, is I've got enough sense to know what a theocracy is, and all of us who are Protestants are Protestants mainly because we did not want one man to head up government and the church to tell us what we had to believe and what we could not believe. Uh, Now, I can go and explain that a lot deeper if you would like for me to. Y'all want to be here for two hours? I can do that. No, no. Uh, But just listen to me. We're not looking for a theocracy. There's one coming. It's called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It's on the way. It's on the way. It's closer today than we realize. Anyway, I want you to understand what David is saying here. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. All of those who founded this country in the three different groups that I've just shared with you, they all came with that understanding, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They came not just to find worship. They were already worshiping. What they wanted to do is they wanted to worship in freedom the way they believed the Word of God instructed. If you like religious liberty, go dig up an Anabaptist and tell him thank you because that's where it comes from. It comes from our Baptist forefathers. Let me give you the second thing. The second thing is this. America was safeguarded by the the sovereign hand of God. Uh, America was safeguarded. Now listen to what David writes because he's talking about that as well. Beginning back up in verse 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. The king isn't saved. The nation isn't saved. America has not been saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. In other words... Uh, We're not dependent on great warriors who have incredible strength, nor on the implements of war. That's what a horse was in this day. It It was the tank of David's day. To have a horse and to go into war was to have a great war implement. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. He said, listen, let me tell you, you can stop looking to kings. You can stop looking to armies. You can stop looking to these uh, special forces, these great warriors that we've got. And you can stop looking for all these implements of war. Where does protection come from? Almighty God. Almighty God. Now, I'm going to give you a story. I'm going to give you an illustration. Now, here's the illustration. I've just given you a text, so let me illustrate it. Can you see that in our history? Yes, you can. You can even see it with George Washington. Um, There is a war that most people overlook. By the way, there's a new book out on it. just came out within the last year on the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War. 
Most people in America, we don't know much about that, but let me tell you, it became the proving ground, the training ground for George Washington. It's what trained him to be a soldier. Um, Washington had very little education. Like Lincoln, he had very little education. He had no military training whatsoever. Uh, but the British took him. He signed up to be a part of the army because he needed money and he thought that they could teach him and it was a living in that day and time. And so he joined the army and uh, they sent over General, General William Braddock to prosecute the war between the French and the Indians. And Braddock turned to Washington, not because of his military expertise, but they made him a colonel and they brought him with Braddock because he knew the country. He was a surveyor. And he had surveyed all of this country. And so they took him because he knew where he was. They had no clue where they were. So they bring Washington with them. And as they go to the west, they end up in a major battle that is called the Battle of the Monongahela. 1755, I think. Uh, it was the Battle of the Monongahela. And there, uh, two-thirds of the British army was wiped out. Two-thirds. Braddock was fatally shot. Washington went back to the cart where they had taken Braddock. Braddock basically says, you, you, you're in control of the army now. Do whatever you can do for them. Washington goes back. He halts the advance of the French and the Indians, and he devises a retreat that will save what is left of the British army. It was such a horrendous battle. Braddock is killed. Two-thirds of the army killed. That word got out that Washington had been killed as well. When the battle is over and they get back, Washington writes his brother, John Augustus Washington, to let him know, I've not been killed, I'm still alive. And in that letter, I want you to listen to what Washington writes to his brother. By the all-powerful dispensations of providence. Now, let me stop and tell you, Washington was not a Southern Baptist evangelical. He was high Anglican, <laughs> and uh, he did not talk like we talk. He did not use the terminology that we use. He is in 1755 at this time, high Anglican, so he doesn't sound like a Baptist preacher, at least a conservative Baptist preacher, let me say. Uh, but listen to what he says. But, but it was by the all-powerful dispensations of providence. In other words, by the, by the protective hand of Almighty God. That's what he said. Translation, Mac Brunson. I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation, for I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot from under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. He said, men were being shot and falling dead on every side. I had four bullet holes through my coat, two horses shot from under me, and yet I survived. I am alive. Just thought you'd like to know. That was to his brother. Fifteen years later, 15 years later, Washington met an Indian chief who was at the Battle of the Monongahela. He met this Indian chief who walked up to him and called him the man whom the great spirits protect. Now, that's what he said to him. That's, that's what he called him. That's your name, the man whom the great spirit protects. Listen to what the guy said. Listen to what this Indian chief said to him. He said, you are the man who was divinely protected by God. In that battle, I directed my warriors to aim their muskets at you because we knew if we could shoot the leader, the troops would disband. 
I myself believe I shot you 13 times and that you never died. Do you know that was in the history book 60 years ago? In American history, taught across this country, it was in the American history book 60 years ago. Not there anymore. Because we've got too refined for that. Our higher education knows better in its secularism and its humanism. And in this secular, humanist, revisionist history we have now, any reference to God or miracle whatsoever or the Word of God has been completely removed. The reason why we have such a wonderful nation today is because of the secularism and the humanism that we're embracing. That's why things are so great right now. Don't, don't you agree? <laughs> well, that was Washington. That was Washington in war, but Washington in office. Do you know what his first act was as president? The first president of the United States, the first act as president. Listen to what he says. It would be peculiar improper to omit in this first official act of my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that this benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States. Now, do you know what he's doing there? Do you know what he's saying? We don't even understand terminology like providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties of happiness of the people of the United States. Do you know what he did in his first official act? Pray. He said, the first thing I should do as president of this new nation is to pray and thank God and ask his blessings on this country. Amen. That was a, can you imagine if that would happen today? That if we were to inaugurate a new president and he just stepped forward and pushed everybody out the way and called for everybody to get on their knees and said, listen, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get on our face before Almighty God. Well, every news commentator there would suck their lungs out, you know would be the first thing that would happen. But that's exactly what Washington did. He understood that the only reason that he was where he was was because of the sovereignty of God. Let me give you the third thing. And the third thing is this. America was founded by men who believed the Bible. Listen to what David says. He begins in verse 4 and he says, For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth, earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And he goes down, look down to verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He comes now four times right here from verse 4 to verse 9. And he speaks of the word of God. The word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, he spoke. He commanded. Now, let me tell you something about the founding fathers of this country. They were not perfect. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this much. They were sinners. I am reading five books right now, one of which happens to be by Thomas Kidd, the Baptist historian who teaches history at Baylor. He just came out with a book on Thomas Jefferson called Spirit and Flesh. It is fascinating. It is just fascinating. Uh, he was a conflicted man. He was a man under conviction, I think, for a lot of things. I think for the adultery that was in his life, uh, for, uh, I think he was conflicted greatly because he owned slaves. 
Um, I think he suffered guilt over these things, and he did not know what to do, but there were times when you would have thought he was an evangelical preacher. Uh, it's a great book if you're interested in American history to read that. I don't think it ever resolved out in his life, tragically, sadly. I don't think it ever resolved out in his life. But let me tell you, they were sinners. The founding fathers of this country were sinners. Uh, uh, listen, listen, just like you and me. And we are not a better class of sinners than they were. Do not think that. Now, I love Randy Travis, and I like that song. I'm going back to a better class of loser. You can go back to a better class of loser, but you can't go to a better class of sinners. Amen. You know why? Because we're all sinners, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, Brunson, Boy, in that austere group. <laughs> All of us are sinners. And there's no way to salvation except through God's provision in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, they believe the Bible, however. Now, here's the interesting thing. You take all of those that were there to sign the Declaration of Independence and then go to the Constitutional Convention and take all of those that were there that signed the Constitution, the first Constitution or the Constitution of the United States. You take all of them together and you look at all of their writings. You look at the deliberations through that they went through, all the notes on the deliberations and the arguments, all of their personal writings, and you look at all of that together and the number one thing quoted in all their writing is the Word of God. They were sinners, but I'm going to tell you what, they knew their Bible better than we do. Listen to what Washington said. While we zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly not, ought not to, to be uh, inattentive to the higher duties of religion, to the distinguished character of patriot it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Now, this was attributed to Washington. I could not, I have to admit to you, I could not find this uh, in anything that I looked at in the research that I did, but it has been attributed to Washington by a number of people. I do not know, but here is the quote. Did we bring the Bible to these shores or did it not rather bring us? The breath of the ancient prophets filled the sails of the tiny ships bringing pioneers to the new world. From these beginnings until now, the Bible has been a teacher to our best men, a rebuker to our worst men, and a noble companion of us all. Thomas Jefferson. Listen to this. The deist. Thomas Jefferson. President, drafter, and signer of the Declaration of Independence. God who gave us life gave us liberty. How about that? And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God? Jiminy Cricket. He could have graduated from Southwestern. That they are not to be violated but by his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. And you say, he didn't say that. Yes, he did. I got it noted. Notes on the state of Virginia, query 18, page 237. I do my homework. 
Daniel Webster wrote, more than all, our government and our country were founded from the very first by faith under the divine light of the Christian religion. Anyone who would wish that this country's existence had otherwise begun is deceived. Let us not forget the spiritual character of our origin. Now, did you hear what Daniel Webster said? He said, you can think this country was founded some other way, but I'm telling you the truth of it is we were founded on the Christian religion. What happened to us? Listen to this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been accorded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Patrick Henry. The Bible will also inform them that our gracious creator has provided for us a redeemer in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed that this redeemer has made atonement for the sins of the whole world and thereby reconciling the divine justice and the divine mercy has opened a way for our redemption and salvation and that these inestimable benefits are of the free gift and grace of God, not of our deserving nor in our power to deserve. John Jay, the first Supreme Court Justice of the United States. You say, when a preacher, are you, you telling us today that this is a Christian nation? Well, listen to the Supreme Court. Listen to the Supreme Court of 1892, who cited and used and agreed with the, the, the statement that came from the Supreme Court of the state of New York, the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court of New York said this, later cited by the United States Supreme Court and agreed upon, the people of this state, in common with the people of this country, profess the general doctrines of Christianity as the rule of their faith and practice. We are a Christian people. Lord, and the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. Seventy years later, exactly, 60 years ago, exactly this year, the Supreme Court in a six to one ruling, two abstaining, ruled that Christian prayer in school is unconstitutional. 1962. Not long behind that came the reading of the Bible. Now, five-year-old little Johnny can watch as a drag queen dances uh, in the classroom, but don't dare give little Johnny a Bible. Why? Because they know it has the power to change life. I don't know if you read this week. I, I, I did. There, there's so many things that I'd love to say this morning, uh, Kate Cohen, I don't know if you ever read her, she's editor, Washington Post, Kate Cohen. Now, let me tell you that we don't know which tribe these Jews came from now. Now, a lot of you go there and they'll tell, oh, yeah, sure, I'm from the tribe of Judah, you know, that, that, no, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. They don't know. We know one. We know who's from the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites. <laughs> Uh, because they're all still called Kohens. 
um, they are the priestly tribe. They're still known. God hasn't let that gotten away because let me tell you, they're going to resurrect. They're already in the process of resurrecting up the Kohathites uh, to perform temple service. But that's a whole nother sermon. But anyway, um, Kate, Kate Cohen is, is a Jew and she is a Kohathite from the priestly tribe. And this week in the Washington Post, she wrote an article that was basically entitled, Atheist Must Rise Up and Save America from the Christians. Now, we live in a little bubble. We, we, we call it Valleydale Church. We live in a little bubble here. But I am telling you, out there in the world, in this country, they're looking to minimize any voice that we have whatsoever. Did we start out a Christian nation? It seems pretty evident to me that we did. And you say, well, in all of that, is this what you're telling us to put our faith in? No, 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 no. Don't dare put your faith in a government. As good as I love America, listen, I'm an American citizen until I die, but I'm going to tell you something. I've got a high, I don't mind pledging allegiance to the flag. That doesn't bother me. I'll pledge my allegiance to the country. But I've got a higher commitment than that. It's called having a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God for eternity. Amen. Don't turn to the government. Don't turn to a politician. And Lord, listen to me, people. Get mad at me if you want to. Because you know when I stand in the pulpit, I don't give a rip. I'm telling you this. You'd better not be putting your hope in political parties. Listen to what David says. Our soul waits for the Lord. Not the Republicans or the Democrats or this or that or the other. Not this man or that man or some other man. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Now just let me ask you a question. Tell me of whom this is speaking. Times were never better. The national economy was strong during his tenure. Inflation, which had been a plague for two decades, was under control. Peace and prosperity characterized the nation. Many considered him to be the most gifted politician to come on the national stage. One journalist wrote of him, although there was uneasiness over his character and the allegations of corruption and immorality that swirled around him, none of his political opponents could touch him. Now, of whom was that said? And by the way, listen to this. On his birthday, the government sent out a prayer for all the people to pray. Now, that's Christian nationalism right there. They sent out, the government did, sent out a prayer for everyone to pray. Before you, O Lord, Heavenly Father, we remember our leader and president on his birthday. We ask you to continue to help him find the right way in the difficult task that yet lay before our nation and to lead all things to a good end. Of whom was that said and who were they praying for? Adolf Hitler, 1941. Germany was the nation 
that 400 years earlier gave us Martin Luther. Gave us the Reformation. Gave us a translation in the vernacular of the people, the Old and the New Testament, and it became the foundational book of education in Europe was the Bible. Germany gave us a break from what was an attempted theocracy over all of Europe. It was the Anabaptists who demanded the government should never tell us how to worship. And Germany was a Christian nation until it wasn't. America was founded in the ways that I shared with you and was Christian until it wasn't. But we don't despair because David writes and he says, our soul waits for the Lord. Let's stand. All of us standing, if you would, and our heads bowed. I have no idea what God is saying to you. You know what? We, we have so little accurate history today that I just try to drip a little bit of that and a little bit of Christian history onto you. We're not a perfect nation. We're not a perfect people. We have so much. You know, we could pray with Ezra and say, Oh, Lord, the sins of our fathers and our sins have just gone way up above our head. It's just far beyond us. The truth of the matter is this, a nation can never repent of its sin until the churches repent of their sin, and the churches will never repent of their sin until individually every single one of us begin to cry out in repentance and for personal revival. That's the desperate need of our hour. It's not this political candidate or that political candidate. It's for every single one of us individually in this place to understand what David was saying. King David at the time, who had sinned himself greatly, who comes now to talk about worship and talk about the Word of God and talk about salvation being only in God. David wasn't calling the people to look to him or to look to the government of Israel. He was calling the people to look to their Savior. Maybe this morning that's what you need to do. Maybe in this moment God's speaking to your heart. You've never trusted in Him as Lord and Savior. And right now the greatest thing you could do is just sincerely in your heart pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I ask you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I confess and believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross for me and that you were raised from the dead to give me life. I understand that it is by grace that I am saved through faith, not of any of my works. It is your free gift, and I receive it in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that, I'd love to meet you right here at the altar. Just like Jeremy last week, I'd love to meet you right here. We can pray. You can give your life to Christ. 
If you just prayed that prayer, I wish you'd step out and come and tell me that you prayed that prayer. If you are struggling right now, I wish you would come and say, I, I, I want you to pray with me. Others of you here this morning, God's blessing your life and feeding you at this church and you're benefiting from being under the spiritual teaching and preaching of the Word of God in this congregation. You need to come and be a part of this church. You need to come and say, this is going to be our church home. You need that accountability. But I have no idea what God is saying to the vast majority of you. But the Holy Spirit does and you do. But I'm inviting you to come and just get at the altar. Father, in these moments, this invitation, Lord, I extend in your name. Dependent on your Holy Spirit to move, not on my ability to preach, but I've lifted up your name. I've done what you've called me to do. And I ask you, Father, to do what only you can do. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you come right now? Just slip out. You come and make that decision. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.